0: Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that is given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can receive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as has now been revealed to his holy prophet apostles and prophets by the spirit this mystery is that the gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of this gospel has made a minister according to the gift of god's grace which was given me by the working of his power To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him." So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Hey, welcome to RUF. My name is Brian Sorgenfra. Uh really glad you're here. Hey, one of the things that we do in RUF is usually we preach through a, a book of the Bible and we're going through Ephesians. And one of the reasons we do that is because going through a book in some ways forces God's word to set the agenda of what you're going to talk about and not just my personal preferences. And I'll admit, tonight, uh, it's just not one of the things that's easy to talk about. I'll probably skip over. Because a lot of what, um, a lot of what Paul talks about gets uh, to the core of a lot of stuff we're sensitive about. Because he just, he takes on racism in this text. Um, but, it's where Paul goes in Ephesians, so we're going to go there. So let me, uh, let me pray for us tonight, because I know it can be especially tense in this area. Father... Um, you are good, and I, I pray what uh, what, the, what John the Baptist prayed that uh, I would decrease, uh, that you would increase. Lord, you are strong, and you are gracious, uh, and that frees and that frees us uh, to be weak, uh, that frees us to be small. And so I pray, Lord, that what is true and good and from your Word uh, would set in our hearts, uh, and anything that's not would just uh, blow away. And would you encourage us uh, by the grace of Jesus tonight, in your Son's name? I pray, Amen. Alright, so uh, if you've been around me, you've probably heard this, but I've been listening to uh, what is the number one listened to podcast in the United States right now. It's called Dr. Death. Uh, it's fascinating. You should listen. But it is this reporter that uh, basically goes and investigates back in 2012 uh, this doctor who amidst a lot of surgeries ended up maiming patients. and she, And she asked the question what in the world happened? And it's It's hard, but it's also compelling because there's a sense that she is unveiling this mystery as she reports it. And really, the top four or five podcasts in America America right now are all mysteries. Which means there must be something that captivates us about something being being hidden that we're figuring out and someone begins to reveal it. Well, the book of Ephesians, seven times the word mystery is used. And here in chapter 3, Paul tells you what the mystery is that he's so excited about. Because in the Bible, a mystery is not something that we have to sit here and figure out and put the pieces of the puzzle together. Actually, a biblical mystery is something that is so hidden and so astonishing and so upside down that you and I would never figure it out. The only way that we know it is that it actually has been revealed in Jesus Christ by and through Him. And so Paul, in chapter 3, here's what I want you to think about. He is so captivated by this mystery that has been revealed in Jesus that he is in prison for it. And he's still excited about it. That's compelling. Because usually when I find out the answer to a mystery, I'm just like, oh, that's cool, and I move on. Paul can't get over this. And he says, it's my purpose. So what is it? Three things. The the mystery carrier the mystery revealed, and then the mystery embodied. All right? First, the mystery carry, uh, carry. This is verse 1, 2, 7, and 8. This is the Apostle Paul describing himself, right? He, 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 he lets you know that who he is. He is Paul. He is in prison for Christ Jesus uh, for the sake of the Gentiles. And that sounds pretty normal. But if you know anything about Paul, it's kind of a crazy description. Because Paul, before he became a Christian was a hater of Jesus, was a murderer of Christians, was a Jewish zealot, so he spent his life trying to be separate from Gentiles, and now he says this, I love Jesus, I'm in prison for him, and actually I love Gentiles so much I'm in prison for the sake of him, for them. That's just kind of crazy. But then if you even hear the way that he describes himself, it's really odd. Because, first of all, he sounds really humble. On the one hand, his name is Paul, which the Greek word literally means small. And again, this takes a little biblical knowledge, but Paul's name used to be Saul. You know what Saul stands for? He was named Saul, which is named after Israel's tall and impressive king. He used to be Saul, the impressive, the great one. And then he meets Jesus, and his name is Paul, which means small. He's willing to be small now. And then he says that the whole reason that he's a minister, right? This is verse 2 and 3 and 4. Is that it's a gift of grace. The whole reason I'm a minister is not because of my ability or because I'm better than other people or if I figured this out. It all is a product of God's unearned favor. And then he describes himself in verse 7. This is what's really strange. As the very least of the saints. Which is really bad grammar if you think about it. Least already is the, the least. And he says, I'm, I'm the leastest of the least. Why would, why would he describe himself as the leastest of the least? Unless he's trying to drive home this point. That really, in his perception of himself, he is the most unworthy recipient of Jesus' love. Paul, the Apostle Paul, this sounds crazy. He would stand in Paris Yates right now, if he was here... And with utter sincerity, he would look at you and say, I'm the biggest sinner that I know. I'm the most unworthy recipient of Jesus' grace. And we'd be like, whatever. But he's being sincere. And so it's incredibly humble. Kind of, uh, there's an old story about St. Francis of Assisi, a uh, church father from the 1200s, where one person, and apparently he was kind of small and kind of weird looking, apparently. And somebody mocked him one time and said... You mean God, you think God chose you to be a minister? And he like guffawed and couldn't quit laughing and said, I know. What happened is God looked over the face of the earth and found the strongest, weakest, most broken, most wretched little sinner that he could find. And say, there, I'll choose that guy. Because if I work through him, no one will give Francis the credit. They'll give it all to God. And he just kind of laughed about it. It's that kind of humility that Paul displays. But here's the other weird thing. If you read his description of himself, there's also this this confidence that goes with this humility, right? He's secure. In verse 1, he says, look, sure, he's a prisoner in Rome. That's where he is right now. But really, he's a prisoner of Christ. There's this confidence that the reason he's in prison is because Jesus is watching over him. He's suffering with unwavering confidence. He knows his purpose. He stands unshakably by it. He knows that I'm here, verse 8, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to you. And then in verse 12 and 13, he says something crazy bold. He says, we all have boldness and confidence to access God. So don't lose heart over my suffering. I know who God is. I know I'm in His favor. And so Paul really is, even the way he describes himself... I would suggest he's a display of how the grace of God really changes people. It makes people both humble and confident at the same time. Which is a really interesting combination. And he says actually that begins to change, radically change your relationship with other people, which is what we're going to talk about. But I want you to consider that. How does the grace of Jesus, if you're trying to figure out Christianity, or if you are... How is it supposed to make you humble and confident at the same time? And why is that so rare to see? Because, I would suggest, the world and all of us to some extent still function like this that the way that I build my confidence is through my own merit. Right? I'm confident because I XYZ. I'm confident because I'm funny. I'm confident because I have money. I'm confident because I made it into this or I'm a good person. When you ground your confidence in something that you do, inevitably, there is a lack of humility. Because I did it. And here's the proof. You, you can't rejoice when someone else does it better than you. It's actually a threat. Right? Because there's no humility. It's still about me. Because the confidence comes from my merit. And therefore, failure... in in that area is actually paralyzing. And so really, the only way that you know how to display humility when you ground your confidence in something that you do, it's through fake humility. You know what that looks like? Like the inability to accept compliments. When somebody points something out that you're good at and you know you are and you really need it, you just have to kind of say, Oh, no, no, I'm really not good at that why because you're so scared that they're going to discover how much you really need that. And the only way we know to do is to kind of shrug it off. I can't be small, I have to be big. Or or you're humble with no confidence, right? Because if I ground my confidence in something about me that I do, then and I fail, or I'm not good at it, I'm just insecure. And some of you are. You're aware that you you aren't good enough in certain areas, whether that's socially, academically, morally, fill in the blank. And you're humble because you know you don't measure up. But there's a paralysis in you that cannot move forward. It overwhelms you, which ironically means it's still about you. Which means it's another form of false humility because it's still about me. So here's what I'd ask you: if you're investigating Christianity tonight, this is one of the things I propose is unique to Christianity, the way that Jesus' salvation brings humble confidence. Because look, if you look at other religions, and really just the way that the world works, it says the way to get on God's good side, or the way to make it in the world, the way to be spared to punishment is essentially you do something. Islam, you, you get better. You do, the, you do the pillars you're supposed to do. Buddhism, you walk the path you're supposed to, to walk. Judaism, you obey, you obey the Torah. It's you. But Christianity, it flips it all upside down. Because it says the way to be in right relationship with God, the way to have His favor, is that Jesus does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. That Jesus obeys the law perfectly for you because you and I cannot do it. And Jesus dies the death that we should have died because you and I cannot do it. And it's all about Him. And that really does something unique. Because the gospel, the salvation, makes you it makes you humble and confident at the same time because it's all of grace. So it has to make you humble. Because what makes a person right with God, what makes you accepted, what makes you eternally loved by God... Is nothing about my performance. But it's because I realize I am spiritually bankrupt. It's because I bring nothing to the table but my sin. And so grace comes to you. And it humbles you. And it frees you from... It frees you to come out of hiding. And admit that you're broken. You don't have to put your best foot forward anymore with Jesus. You can admit who you are. There's, when the gospel of grace comes, it makes you realize I don't even have to fear anything that I might discover in myself that I didn't know was there. I don't have to fear that maybe I, maybe I am like this. Because if Jesus' salvation comes to me not because of my performance, because of His, then it doesn't matter what I discover in me. That's never been the reason that I'm in the right relationship with God anyway. Anyway. And it can't separate me from His love. So I can begin to be honest. And, I, and ironically, the more and more I see my sin, the more and more it will enhance my joy because I understand just how much Jesus has forgiven me and how much I need Him. But it also begins to make you confident. Why? Because the Lord of this universe delights in you. The Lord of this universe can—he can choose anything that He wants and He chooses you. He's delivered you by the sacrifice of the most valuable thing that He could give you, which is His own Son. That's how much He treasures you. And that just, that just gives confidence because it means that life isn't, doesn't have to be about me, me anymore. It can be, I can be small. Your purpose is no longer you, but Jesus. And that means if suffering or hardship or whatever comes into my life, if it advances the cause of Jesus... Then okay, he loves me. He's king. He's good, and he's in control. So Charles Spurgeon, the great, famous Baptist preacher, it's one of my favorite stories about gospel uh, humility, confidence. The thing he was good at. I mean, he's still renowned as probably one of the best preachers to ever exist. Right? He preached to thousands before their microphones. He was standing outside the church one time, you know, greeting people on the way out, and this elderly lady came and shook his hand and. In a way that there's just something about when you reach a certain age, you can say whatever you want. You know, I can't wait to get that point. You know, and people just say, ah, she's old. You know. And she looked at Spurgeon and very loudly said, I want you to know, uh, uh, Mr. Preacher, that you are the most arrogant, self-confident preacher I've ever heard. And I want to be the first to tell you. That's the thing he's good at, preaching, right? It just got attacked. And the place kind of you know, quieted, and that old lady you know, walked off, glad she was told him that. And he turned to the, to the person next to him and just kind of said, Man, she doesn't know the half of it. How did he do that? Right? Isn't that attractive? It must have meant she did not touch the thing that makes him who he is. And I'll ask you Has this happened to you? Honestly. Has the grace of Jesus produced humble confidence in you yet? Because it's offered to you tonight, like it is every Wednesday night. Look at Paul, confident carrier of this mystery of of, of the gospel. But even more so, look at the Savior of Paul, who came not for the righteous, but, but for sinners. That's who we are. So first, that's the mystery carrier But then this mystery gets revealed, this this message that he's excited about proclaiming and actually actually living. So Paul says the work of Christ finally revealed, puts on display what used to be a mystery all throughout the Old Testament. There are hints and shadows of it. It was always God's plan, but he says now we know what it is. Verse 6, it's this. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says here's the amazing mystery. Gentiles, probably everybody in this room by the way, those outsiders, those people have always been part of God's plan. And that now with the coming of Christ, all the walls have come down. So that now Gentiles are people of God, not by becoming Israelites. Gentiles are people of God in the same way that, it, that Jewish people are people of God. By faith in Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. And, and Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ, the same body. Think how intimate of language that is. Your foot cannot hurt without the rest of your body knowing it. He's saying that's how wed you are together, Jews and Gentiles. And again, we, we don't have time to go through the history of the Jews and Gentiles, but you just have to know they hated each other. There are stories of, Jew, of uh, Jewish moms not helping Gentile moms have birth because that would bring another Gentile into the world. That's how bad it was. And, and Paul is saying, here's what Jesus is putting on full display. That his power has taken down the dividing wall of hostility. And now who used to be enemies are friends and reconciled and one in Christ. This is the mystery. Yes, God reconciles us to himself by sheer grace. But he says that ine- inevitably makes us start reconciling to each other in real friendship. That's what's on display. And look, we, we've said a few times in Ephesians that Paul, he's in prison in Rome. I'll be honest, I never connected the dots of why he's actually in prison until I studied this passage. You know why he's in prison? You can read about this in Acts 21. The reason he gets thrown in prison is because Jewish authorities throw him in prison because he brings a Gentile into the temple. He brings one of those people into friendship. And verse 1, he just says, I'm here. I'm here because of you, Gentiles, and I'm okay with that. If that brings suffering, okay. That's the mystery of God's word. And so Paul, as this mystery carrier, he first of all displays the gospel humble confidence that comes because of the grace of Jesus. But then he's proclaiming, proclaiming and living out the mystery that Jesus has brought down the dividing wall between people. That Jew, Gentile, are one body in Christ. So here's the question, right? How in the world does that apply to 2018? I think most of us are Gentiles in here, Right? The answer is the rest of of these verses, 8 through 13. The mystery embodied. How is this mystery of humble confidence that leads to reconciled relationships, how is it embodied and seen by the world? Verse 8 through 10, Paul says that the unsearchable riches of Christ are heard, and the mystery, ready, the plan of reconciliation will be seen through the church. Through the church. The manifold wisdom of God is on display. That Paul says the plan of God is to reconcile to himself and to each other in this thing called the church. A body that everybody will see and say, that's supernatural. That's unbelievable. Paul is saying that the church is the place where hurts get healed. Where for, former enemies become friends and they learn how to love each other and care for each other. And let's just keep going where Ephesians is going. The church, the people of God, is, is supposed to be the place where the normal divisions of race, class, and culture come down. Because this new society is formed called the body of Christ. And so the church is supposed to be the living embodiment of this mystery that's been revealed of a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, united because of the blood of Jesus. That's what he said. The church is—it is the display of the manifold wisdom of God. That word "manifold" is the same word that she used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors, the multicolored wisdom of God. That's what he says. Brian Ritz, who. Um, not too long ago, it was uh, a pastor of a multicultural church in Memphis called Fellowship Memphis. And he tells the story of how one Sunday, uh, he was down front shaking hands when this elderly African-American woman came up to him with tears in her eyes. And here's what, here's what she said. Or here's what he said. She squeezed my hand with all of her might. Tears were, down, were streaming down her face. And she told me that for years... She had worked as a domestic in the city of Memphis, cleaning homes of whites, taking care of kids. She was there when Dr. King was killed. She recalls all the busing of integration. And then she said this, as she mustered up her strength and squeezed my hand as hard as she could. I've prayed for a multi-ethnic church with a pastor, and you, son, are the answer to my prayers. And Lorette said this, I don't think she heard anything that I said in the sermon. Because the whole time she was looking left and right in astonishment as blacks and whites were worshipping together. She saw the gospel displayed before she ever heard it preached, and it changed her. That's what this is saying that the multi ethnic, multicultural church is a visible demonstration of the power of the gospel, it's a, it's a visible demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. And look, I, I love being American. Let me say that. Love it. Don't want to live in any other country. Love the American church. But of all the great things about the American church, we have to embrace this. This is an incredible weakness, and we're much poorer for it. Right? Dr. King said, the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sundays. And he's Right? Look, I'm not shaming you, I'm not shaming myself, but look, you could also say that one of the most segregated hours on the campus of Ole Miss is Wednesday nights at 8.30 in Paris H. Chapel. And I'm just asking you to see, are we perhaps missing some of the manifold wisdom of God that is out there? We are not experiencing the full reconciling power of the gospel in this room and in our churches. And we're poorer for it. We just are. And I think Paul went to prison for this notion. Like Paul thought it well worth his while to die for this mystery. When Paul, this is what's fascinating. When Paul went to plant a church like the church in Ephesus. What he never did was this. He never planted a Jew church here and a Gentile church here. That would have been easier. It would have been a whole lot lot cleaner and not as much mess. He planted one church, raised the banner of Christ, and said, we're united under him. We've got to figure out how to get along. That's what he did. And Paul wants them and us to experience the power of the gospel, not just to save souls, though that's important, but to experience reconciliation with each other. So we know the fullness of him. So what is the way forward? And I... Bring it to a close here. I could Try to give a little application. The way forward is the, is the thing that Jesus produces. The way forward is humble confidence. First, that, that means that probably some of you actually need to consider that the reason that Jesus might be boring to you and the reason there seems to be no experience of Jesus' grace and power is because you aren't in the place that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed. You're not in His church. And the truth of God's reconciling power of every tribe, tongue, and nation, it has to at some point move past an idea to actually be something in front of you that you're getting to know, care about, and love. There's a survey in the last decade that went out, and one of the questions was this. Can you be a good Christian without regularly attending church? 81% of Americans responded with yes. Look, of course you can be a Christian not be a membership. I'm not saying that, but just realize... That for most of church history, and Paul would say, I don't even have a category for that. To be, a, to be united to Jesus means I have to be united to Jesus' people. And if there is no church that I'm a part of, I'm just not really doing that. I'm just asking you to consider that. that Ephesians is setting before us and setting God's agenda for this world before us. And he's saying that he reconciles people together through his church. Which means if you're alone in Christianity, you are missing out on the riches of Jesus. Find a local church. It's going to be messy. It's going to be ordinary. It's going to seem boring sometimes, but he's at work there. But secondly, we've got to take this seriously. Ephesians here, and really the trajectory of the whole Bible assumes this. The gospel brings together people that otherwise would never, ever get along and never want to be together. And that loving, caring, forgiving relationships with people united by Christ displays the wisdom of God. And did you see this? I think this is verse 10. It displays the wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What in the world does that mean? Honestly, I don't completely know. Here's my best shot at it. It at least means something like this. That the heavenly places... Is the spiritual unseen world that interacts with this world. And so here's what Paul is saying. That there are beings that are peering over the balcony of the heavenly places watching the church. And that when enemies become friends because of Jesus. When people forgive, when relationships are healed. The angels start celebrating. And they say, look at that. I told you Jesus won. That's amazing. And they celebrate. And demons watch. And when they see relationships get healed, they hang their head in disappointment and defeat. Because they realize, oh yeah, the gates of hell will not stand against the church. And they're just watching. And they're astonished. So if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, and I really can only make this application to you. People talk about guarding your witness all the time in college, right? Whatever, Whether you should drink, if you're over 21 or not, whether you should be seen here or there, that's, you should think, that's great, think through those things. But the witness on display that even the heavens see and that other people see according to, to Ephesians, what will tarnish or preserve your, your witness is your making of or lacking of gospel friendships across racial and cultural lines. That's what Paul's saying. I'm just telling you this because I'm pleading with you to do better than me. I'm like 37. I hope that shocks some of you, by the way. Some of you are like 37. He looks 23. Thank you. Um, But I want you to do better because some of these categories, I'm going to be honest, didn't even start coming into my mind until about four or five years ago that racial reconciliation is real has a gospel implication, and we need to feel the weight of it. And the way forward is to lean with humble confidence. OLMIS is an incredibly diverse place. It's crazy diverse. Lean into friendships with people that otherwise you would never choose to be in relationship with. You would have no, you'd have nothing in common except the manifold wisdom of God. Lean in, not because it's politically correct, not because it's this cultural moment, because it's always been the plan of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to break down the wall of hostility. And it's going to start with humility. Humility to listen. Humility assumes I probably don't know what it's like to be you and if I'm going to love you and care for you and be a friend of you, I have to listen. Listen. I'm like the whitest person. I went to Jackson Prep, okay? Like I'm upper middle class Jackson Prep, okay? So, and in the the relationships I've made with my African American brothers and sisters, here's some things I learned. Like, if you're like me, you just probably don't think about your skin color very much. We just don't. African Americans think about it all the time. All the time. We just don't know what that's like. And it takes humility to ask questions and listen. It takes humility when racial and cultural differences come up and not take it personally. It takes humility to understand why like the Mississippi state flag might actually be offensive to some people. And to own that. Or why certain things that we just assume this is the way things are actually might just be cultural and we can open them and we can hold them with open hands. I don't know, but you can lose those things for the kingdom. But it also means that you can move forward in relationships with confidence. Like I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, you'll probably figure this out, but there's this great scene in Harry Potter Goblet of no, Half-Blood Prince. Harry and Dumbledore, they're on this quest and they start moving into these perilous waters together. It's scary, and Dumbledore very calmly looks at Harry and says, "Harry, I'm not worried. I'm with you." It's awesome because Dumbledore knows the plan. Dumbledore knows as long as you're with Harry, things are going according to plan. Don't you see? Any step you tw- you take towards these kind of relationships, Jesus is with you. It's a part of His plan. Will there be awkwardness? I'm sure there will. Will you and I fail? Yes. But Jesus is for you. And he's with you. And he died in order to reconcile people to himself and to each other. You and I just aren't big enough to stop God's plan for this universe. You can lean in. And so this is my final encouragement. Paul ends, you see this verse 13, speaking to Gentiles, people who used to hate him. And he says this, Do not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. There's something so rich about Jesus that Paul is willing to suffer. For people that used to hate them. That sounds a lot like somebody else that we know. And his name is Jesus. Who came and died and suffered for us who hated him. What that must mean is that it is through the suffering you get that you become more like Jesus. Not apart from it. If you start leaning into these relationships, will you experience a little suffering? Yes. Some people will call you liberal. Some people will call you conservative. Some people will call you racist. Okay, and through that you'll be becoming more like Jesus. That's the place that He works, and through that you'll more and more understand that Jesus came through my walls of shame, my guilt, my uh, my sin, and He went to the cross and He smashed those things so that I could be His. That's my closing invitation. My hope and my prayer is that tonight doesn't feel like shaming or guilting. Those are Satan's tools. But that you see the joy of who Christ is and what he's doing in this world. And that you can actually get a fresh glimpse of who he is as he reconciles relationships. Wouldn't that be awesome to taste? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this mystery that's been revealed in Christ. That you are reconciling not just people to yourself, but to each other. Uh, I think some of us, uh, if they're like me, we, we kind of believe in the, gospel, the power of the gospel to save me. We don't really believe in the power of the gospel to reconcile us to other people. Uh, So would you help us to be encouraged uh, with humble confidence to walk forward and believe that you're at work. In your son's name I pray. Amen.